Hello and welcome to another episode of Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. I'm Shireen Hamza. Today we're welcoming on the podcast Angela Anderson. Uh, she's currently a postdoc at the Aga Khan Program for Islamic Architecture at Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT. Uh, and she's also a graduate of The Ohio State University, PhD in History of Art. Uh, she's currently working on a project at MIT entitled Gem Evlery, an, exam- an examination of the historical roots and contemporary meanings of Alavi architecture and iconography. Angela, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. So the subject of today's conversation is uh, part of, indeed, a central part of that project on, on Gem Evlery and Alavi architecture. We will be talking about uh, what we're calling in this podcast Alavi architecture, which is, and, and we're, what we're looking at is the architectural spaces associated with Alavi community and practice. And we'll allow you to elaborate on that. Um, but first, for our, le- our listeners who maybe aren't familiar with even Turkey per se, but are interested in this uh, podcast because they're interested in the history of religion or Islam and whatnot, I think we should explain very briefly uh, what we mean by the term Alevi, who is an Alevi, where are Alevis, and you know, sort of briefly define what this uh, uh, modifier is that we're using. Well, like all modifiers, it's probably best defined by people who call themselves um, Alevis. But as a non-Alevi person, my working definition is uh, that Alevilik, Aleviism, being an Alevi, uh, it's an umbrella term for a series of spiritual lineages that are led by people who have a a biological relationship to the family of the Prophet Muhammad. So these different lineages are historically tied to figures known as dedes, which literally means Mm -hmm. grandfather, and dedes are sides or descendants of the Prophet. These individual spiritual lineages have different teachings. They speak different languages, Turkish, Kermanji, Zaza. Um, They practice in different parts of Anatolia. They um, also now live in diaspora in both urban regions in Turkey, Istanbul and Ankara and Izmir. And they have migrated to Europe. So there are large Alevi communities living in, in London, in the UK, in Scandinavia, Germany, um, and even some Alevis living in North America today. Um, the origin of the term Alevi comes out of the fact that the term Kuzulbash, which was often used to refer to Alevi mm. practicing Alevi people, became a pejorative term. So mm. Kuzulbash means red head. It referred to mm-hmm. a red cap that, um, that these people would, would wear going back to the 16th century and earlier. And so the term Alevi was uh, chosen to refer to the fact that they revere the Prophet Muhammad's uh, son-in-law, and mm-hmm. uh, who, who is um, Ali ibn Abu Talib. Aleviism is it's a practice, if we're going to look at it in terms of, of, of religious practice, it is a practice that looks to the descendants of the family of the prophet. So that links it to the tradition of Shiism, in which it is believed that the prophet indicated that he wanted his descendants to mm-hmm. become the spiritual and political and practical leaders of the Islamic community. This is in direct opposition to the surrounding 
surroundings of most Alevi communities because mm-hmm. the Seljuk, uh, Seljuks of Rum and the Ottomans um, and, and most Republican Turkish Muslims are practicing Sunnis. Mm-hmm. And the Sunnis believe that the Prophet, uh, when he was, uh, what, before he died, that he indicated that he wanted his closest followers mm-hmm. to take on the, the leadership right. of the community. Yeah. The, the problem with these designations is that many groups, many Sufi orders, um, the Alevis themselves don't fit into either category because they're not accepted by the Twelver um, Shia and they're not accepted by Sunnis. They're considered heterodox by Mm -hmm. both of these groups. And of course, uh, between sort of that long historical perspective you just set up and the present, there's a whole history of transformations in religious practice, movement of peoples and different religious orders that we won't be able to get into. We do have some other episodes on our website that touch on it. It's still it's a very vibrant field of study. Uh, so we've set up the the general topic, but let's get a little bit more specialized for our listeners who want to find out about this uh, term we've mentioned, Alevi architecture. Because for our listeners in Turkey, certainly they'll be familiar with a, a lot of themes related to the history and, and culture and politics of Alevis today. But architecture is not necessarily the thing that would most stand out. I mean, for me, it would be music, just being such a fan of Turkish music and, and the role that Alevis have played in the making of modern Turkish music. So uh, how did you come to this subject of Alevi architecture and what exactly are we talking about when we say this term? Well, this is an excellent question. And because I've been trained as an architectural historian, it's one that's come up for me many, many times. Um, the idea that there is an Alevi architecture, first of all, has been debated by people in Turkish politics most recently uh, because, in fact, many Alevi communities use a congregational space that is best defined by the term ad hoc, so um, a designated room in somebody's home that is agreed upon before the ceremony. Uh, some uh, practicing Alevis have told me about their memories uh, in their childhood of going to spaces in the natural world, so congregating around caves or uh, springs or other sites on the natural landscape. Mm. Many Alevis today rent office buildings or they share spaces with, with other communities. So the idea that Alevis have a typology of congregational religious architecture is certainly debatable. Um, The reasons for this are many. Um, One, of course, is that they reject the idea that it was uh, decreed as one of the tenets of the faith that people should meet for both congregational and individual prayer uh, five times a day and on Friday for for Juma. Um, They believe that there are Uh, Many teachings, in fact, in what we can call sort of mainstream Islamic practice that are simply displays of faith rather than true belief and practice. Mm. Um, So this is the difference between uh, the the Zahr, which is Mm -hmm. the kind of exoteric, and the Batan, which is the esoteric or the the inner. Um, And this applies to their interpretation of the Quran as well. And it is something that's taught by a, a number of Sufi orders and the Ismaili community as well that that there are that there are true forms of practice and then displays of practice. So the idea that you would require this kind of visual symbol of a monumental yeah. structure is uh, is a bit contrary to this. The other 
important factor, well, there are two other important factors. One is the economic output required to sponsor and construct monumental architecture. Yeah. This is beyond the scope of small rural communities in, mm-hmm. in, in the historical context and, and even communities in diaspora or mm-hmm. urban communities today, although they often express a desire to build larger structures to serve their communities. Right, because... Historically, Alavi community is not an urban community. Alavism is centered in um, uh, rural settings of Anatolia. So the urbanization phenomenon is relatively recent for uh, these communities. That's right. People began to move towards Istanbul in the 40s and 50s, mm-hmm. um, like many other rural Anatolian people, yeah. looking for work, looking for educational opportunities, uh, healthcare, and these kinds of things. The other factor that really impacted the development of uh, what we are terming an, a levy architecture is the need to uh, protect themselves. Uh, they were considered a heretical group mm-hmm. and, and still are by by many quarters. And so they really needed to remain inconspicuous. And so mm-hmm. by having their ceremonies, their congregational um, worship within say, uh, a house, uh, protected them from an identifiable architecture that mm-hmm. could then be targeted and shut down or result in persecution. Which is maybe another parallel with some Ismaili communities. Exactly. And and even some Sufi orders who even sure. today remain underground in, in, in the modern Turkish context, um, depending on how favorable they they. Um, are with the authorities. And so there, there's a whole sort of complex framework within which Alevis have used space. But the, the way that I have come to understand it is that the priority of the Alevi community is upon people, mm-hmm. not upon architecture. And I think this is a really important aspect of their entire approach to their teachings, to the support for each other, to their actually to their survival over the last seven centuries in the face of severe persecution, because they have been able to be malleable and flexible, um, but to look uh, towards their community Mm -hmm. and the needs of their community. And so it's really the assembly of the people, the the gem, the gemat, that is of significance and not the architecture. Having said that, in speaking with modern Alevi people um, in the last 10 years or so, it has been brought up several times that I think one, I'll use the words of a particular person who said that it's really significant to have an address. So as a minority community, if you can offer the world an address that you have, you can say that you have a place in society, that you are serving your community, that people, young people, elderly people, people who are recent migrants, they have a place to go to if they need help, if they Mm -hmm. need companionship, if they want to receive the teachings of the community. And so this idea that um, is embodied in the last couple of decades um, through which Alevi communities are constructing what they have to term kultur merkezleri or cultural mm. centers yeah. in Turkey to get around some of the restrictions on private places of worship. They are providing 
educational facilities, sometimes child care or basic health care mm-hmm. facilities, often a social space. Um, and morgues, which is quite a significant mm-hmm. priority, soup kitchens. And these are all the services that are combined alongside the the gem space, the ceremonial space. Mm-hmm. And so I think this is a kind of a... It's kind of a model of the village organization where, you know, all of the people in the village would be helping each other through sickness, yeah. through through the phases of life, through child rearing. And, and now this happens within a single structure, a single purpose built or, or rented and adapted structure within the urban context. And this is the case for um, for diasporic communities as well. So in addressing the subject of Alevi architecture, it's actually something a bit broader. We're talking about Alevi social and religious spaces, essentially. The the, the building or whatever, the space is defined by the um, actions that take place in that space. Um, so let's move to, to the heart of the discussion, which is um, the architectural space of the gem Evi and the gem that takes place in it. The gem is the religious Gathering Gem Evi is the the place where the gem takes place for our, for our listeners. Um, a word that's that's not radically different from the Turkish word for mosque, which is jami, which also comes from you know the same roots of the words. Um, so why don't you introduce um, the space of the Gem Evi for us, both as a space and uh, as a building in our modern uh, context? Of course. In terms of doing doing field work, um, I had far more access to contemporary gem evi spaces than than those that were used in traditional village contexts. Although I did do a significant amount of wandering about and looking for Alevi communities and their architecture, and the main requirement for a space that is going to house the gem is that it be safe, Mm -hmm. um, that the people who are the owners or stewards of the building be morally equipped to house the gem and that the community agrees that this is the appropriate space. And so there is a ceremonial request of of the people who are going to participate. They have to agree that they acknowledge that this is a, this is the inappropriate space and so this kind of community agreement opens up the use of this particular space now whether an, a gem evi is a purpose built space in in Istanbul or in you know Frankfurt or a purpose built space in a village or it is an adapted space the main feature is that it must be open, it must accommodate all of the people who have come to participate, and it must provide a clear line of sight between the people who are facilitating the ceremony and the Mm -hmm. people who have come to participate in the ceremony. So if we were, for example, to move the desks out of a classroom and we cleaned the floor and made sure it was appropriate, then that would be an appropriate space Mm -hmm. to use as a gem Mm-hmm. setting. Um, the men and the women in the community generally sit together. In some 
contemporary context, they have started to delineate so men sit on, for example, the left and women on the right or vice versa. But in a traditional context, men and women would be seated together. Mm -hmm. And the Dede and some of the other facilitators of the ceremony would sit somewhere towards the front so that their teachings and the performance of a series of hymns, Mm -hmm. which are significant to the liturgy of the gem ceremonies, uh, could be performed and, and heard by all people. In the center of the space, so often designated by a carpet or, or an open space in the floor, is a circular or area established by the people seated around the center of the room. Um, and it is referred to as the Maidan or the, the open square. And that's where the Sema takes place. So uh, the uh, rhythmic dancing by men and women in the community, accompanied by the music of the Saz or Balama, which is a significant symbol mm-hmm. in Aleviism uh, because of the role of, of these hymns in the gem liturgy. And many of the other liturgical events during the ceremony take place in this empty space. So people are called forward. Um, for example, in the communal gem ceremony, the Gurgu gem, people resolve any kind of interpersonal or community conflicts that they may have in a ceremonial setting. And so they can bring their disputes or, or their conflicts and the Dede will facilitate the resolution mm-hmm. of those conflicts. And so in the in the terms of the ceremony, there are there's a component of remembrance of the sacrifices at Karbala, for example. Mm-hmm. There's a recounting of the prophet's night journey, the miraj, called the mirajlama in the Alevi context. And there um, is a resolution of conflicts. And so this is the nature of the communal ceremony. There are, there are many versions of the gem, in fact. Some gems commemorate particular in- sainted individuals. Mm-hmm. Some gems are intended to initiate people into the community when they come of age. Some gems oversee uh, the spiritual uh, siblinghoods, musahiplik, in which uh, couples or individuals agree to care for each other throughout Mm -hmm. life in terms of, you know, spiritual and bodily needs. And so there are many communal um, as well as uh, spiritual functions for the gem, although, of course, practicing right. Alevi people would consider those one and mm-hmm. the same. So the space simply needs to be a clean, safe, right. open area. It could be outside, as I mentioned. It could be inside. And the decoration that generally accompanies these spaces um, includes either posters or embroideries or calligraphic panels denoting mm. the 12 imams. Um, often there is an image of a poet saint because Alevi's uh, revere a, a lineage of poet saints, including Ahmed Yasevi, Haji Bektashvili, uh, Pir Sultan Abdal. There's a, a whole series of these important figures. Mm-hmm. Um, Hatai, who is actually Safavid Shah Ismail, mm-hmm. who is also uh, a poet writing under the name The Fallible Hatai. And they include images of these uh, figures within the gem space um, in many instances. There's uh, usually uh, some kind of uh, rug, carpets, cushions for people to sit on. The 
people who are given significant liturgical roles, including the Dede and the person who is the Zakir, who is playing the, the, the music, they often sit on a post, which is an animal skin. And this comes uh, also from the Bektashi Sufi tradition, where the significant participants or, or facilitators of the ceremony are given liturgical roles indicated by uh, the presence of animal skins on which they sit. And there's also a candelabra because there's a ceremonial lighting and then snuffing of of the light uh, in order to, mm-hmm. of course, in, indicate this very universal symbol of enlightenment mm-hmm. and illumination. And so these small portable objects often are included within the space as well. Yeah. This is a really fascinating description of the Gemavi as a uh, fluid space that could be uh, that is suited to the gem uh, and the practices there. Your project uh, involved a lot of research, as you said, going and finding the communities and their sites. Did you go to specific purpose specific buildings in this research, and uh, how does that contrast with the more um, the the picture that you have painted for us of um, any space designated by the people there being able to serve as a Gemavi? Well, in terms of my sort of research methodology, I spent a lot of time interviewing people about their experiences of space. And so one of the things that came out of that is that anybody who's sort of over the age of about 45 or 50 who has any childhood memories of having a gem in their smaller rural communities would note that it was held in a home. They're not ever really quite sure which specific houses, usually one of the larger houses. When people moved, started to move to the cities or were experiencing any kind of disconnect from their rural communities or had been born in a larger center, their ideas about what a gem space might look like were slightly different. There is a kind of idealization of the the past in which all communities gathered in the comfort of someone's home and were able to enact the entire liturgy of the gem, which which may or may not be the case. Uh, you know, there there's a lot of people who were not able to experience the their Alevi practice in that way. And so when people arrived in these urban settings, it they made it one of their priorities to construct purpose-built Alevi centers. As I mentioned, they are they have to be ca- be called gem evi and cultural center or cultural center and gem evi in order to circumvent some of the republican turkish laws about restricting private places of worship and so these urban centers provide the services that i mentioned morgues educational facilities as well as gem spaces and they are quite often on the outskirts or what were the outskirts of cities Um, quite often they can be found as close as possible to the uh, pilgrimage sites from the Bektashi order of Sufis or, or any perceived pilgrimage site. So if they have the opportunity to construct or even to refurbish um, pilgrimage sites and previous architecture, for example, the, the Bektashi Sufi lodges that were closed uh, first in the 1820s and then again with the formation of the Turkish Republic, then they do so. And so these 
purpose-built Alevi centers are often fairly basic in the terms of their design. They're meant to serve the mm-hmm. community. And so one of the, the teachings that is often offered is that service to the community or service to people is service to God. And so they look upon offering these kinds of services as a fulfillment of their obligation to their community. Okay, we've got lots more to talk about, but we are going to take a quick music break and be right back with... Angela Anderson talking about Gem Evies and Alavi architecture. Uh, stay tuned. Ottoman History Podcast. Chris Grayton and Shireen Hamza here talking to Angela Anderson about her research uh, on the Gem Evi. Angela, you've been telling us about this really wonderful research that you've been doing on the Gem and the Gem Evi as a space that is suited to the Gem and how urban with urban migration there have been some various valences of meaning to the term Gem Evi. How has this changed understanding of the Gemavi and changed space of the Gemavi in various urban spaces affected practices that take place within the Gemavi? Well, it's it's very complicated and it depends on the particular community. One of the things that people have told me quite frequently during the process of, of doing interviews and collecting oral histories is that in the past, in a, in a sometimes it, perhaps in an imagined past and sometimes in in their actual memories the gem was a congregation of people that you knew so people your neighbors the people in your village the dede that you were studying with your spiritual guides and teachers your parents your family and today in larger urban centers, the gem is held on a weekly basis. So traditionally it would have been held perhaps a few times a year, depending on the workload of the, of the people involved. The dead days were often mendicant and would travel to their followers in various villages uh, after the harvest season. And so people are congregating every week with, with sometimes hundreds of other alevis that they may or may not know from different spiritual lineages. And so it's all right for a Dede from another lineage 
to facilitate the gem that you are participating in, but it creates a very different environment in terms of these interpersonal relationships between students and teachers that have traditionally been fostered in Alavi society. And it also brings up very complicated questions of administration. So who should be making decisions about these larger Alevi centers? Who gets to decide what they look like? Who decides who the architect is going to be? How much they're going to cost? Who is going to maintain them? And these are not decisions that Dedes were traditionally needing to make. So in some cases, such as at uh, Garib Dede in, uh, in Istanbul, the Dede lineage that is heading up the the gem evi there is also taking on the administrative roles. But in other settings, people are rejecting the leadership of certain Dedes in favor of others, or they are choosing to elect a board to, in order to oversee the operation of their of their Alevi centers. And so it is it is empowering some Alevis to practice without the oversight of some of their lineages, which they have uh, found oppressive. And in other cases, it, it's creating a kind of new interpretation of what the Alevi community is. Sure. Yeah. And I, I, I feel like based on your description that there's a there's a really big shift there, actually, in terms of how the Gemevi would function in the context of, say, modern Istanbul, where it's become a, a more public religious space in a way in, the, in that you're interacting with people who you don't necessarily know. I think this is very true. And in some ways, this has given Alevi's agency. It has allowed them to lobby the government for more rights. For example, they have been working for many years now on asking the government to either exempt their children from the obligatory religious education that's part of the school system or to provide Alevi education Mm. in place of these Sunni teachings. Um, But in other cases, it takes the the personal out of the gem experience. So if the Gurgu gem is considered a place where community disputes are resolved, what does that do to the situation when you have 300 strangers, virtual strangers Mm -hmm. sitting around watching you talk about your family conflict or your, uh, your dispute with your brother-in-law or something like that. So it, it does change certain things and, Of course, there are financial decisions that need to be made. And even in terms of the architectural symbolism, this is important because there are communities now that are that are hoping to build larger Alevi centers that are looking to presents a in, in almost a public relations sense yeah. to present a facade, a literal facade to the surrounding community so that people can see that the Alevis are part of Turkish society. Right. And so in doing that, they have they have had a number of contests. They have called on architects to submit yep. drawings. They've commissioned architects. And these architects are often not practicing Alevi people. So they are looking to different sources for the visual symbolism that they are attempting to include within these buildings. And that was going to be my next question, as a matter of fact, because as you have the, you know, the making of these, these spaces that, um, as you've described, somehow more closely resemble the religious spaces of the non-Alevi neighbors of Alevis in Turkey, you know, sort of this convergence of the, um, 
at, at least the outward form of, of the religious practice, um, someone has to build these buildings. Um, and they have to take inspiration from somewhere, right? Part of it is about the gem and what the needs of the gem are, but there's also, you know, this, it has to have a structure. Tell us about the architects. Tell us about where the, you know, in some of the sites you've looked at, and maybe they differ quite widely, but where do they get to the designs for the buildings? Well, in traditional, what, what we're calling today traditional Alevi culture, so imagining a past in which Alevis are practicing in villages, mm-hmm. their architecture is self-built. And so they are the people who are creating their own homes and mm-hmm. therefore their own places of worship. In urban settings, they are having to hire architects and, and engineers um, of various backgrounds. And sometimes the designs are, from an architectural history perspective, incredibly interesting. I went to visit the community on the Prince's Islands. Uh, they have a have been living on the Prince's Islands off the coast of Istanbul since the 40s. And they uh, commissioned an architect to construct a place of worship for them. And it's quite a striking building. Um, it's constructed out of basically steel girders that form an almost tent-like, yurt-like space oh, with an okay. oculus over, over the, the place of worship. And, and I found it to be quite interesting and was already with my you know notebook in hand to interpret the symbolism of the space. But when I asked the community further, they said, well, actually, they didn't choose the design or didn't instruct the architect on the design. This was the design that was offered to them. It was within the amount of money that they had to spend and it works for them, but it's not what they would have Hmm. necessarily made for themselves. And this was a very interesting turning point for me in terms of my uh, attempt to typologize and and understand these spaces because what is practical, what is necessary, what is aesthetically pleasing, what is affordable, all have to come together in some sort of way to make a large number of people happy without contravening any of the current laws in Turkey Mm. about places of worship. Uh, One of the interesting images that has come up on several occasions in both prospective designs and buildings that are partially constructed or underway is that of the Kurlangic Tavan. This is a type of lantern roof. Uh, It means a swallowtail roof, um, swallowtail ceiling in Turkish. So kind of dovetailing technique in which lengths of timber or actually peeled logs, so Mm -hmm. logs that have had their bark removed, are stacked on top of each other in successively smaller squares so that it forms a kind of pyramidal lantern with with a a series of star shapes. And so it's quite beautiful. It it has been um, used in... Alevi architecture, and in fact, one of the oldest surviving buildings that's thought to have been a gem evi um, in Malatya has this type of roof structure. Really? And it's also present in the buildings of the Bektashi order, for example, mm. the the Haji Bektashvili Teke in Tekesian in uh, in Haji Bektash. But the interpretation of this symbol has become two dimensional. So I have seen it, for example 
as a facade treatment. So using those um, overlaid squares as a patterning for the floor in a foyer or on the front of a building next adjacent to the doors, or even uh, attempts to kind of recreate or reinterpret this lantern roof form. And so this is very interesting, but not necessarily representative of all of the different regional approaches to architecture mm. that Alevis um, can can attest to. And it's also actually a type of roof structure that's used in all manner of buildings. So if you go to Mush, it's used in kitchens and right. bakehouses. If you go to some regions, it used to be the roof structure that was used in barns and other buildings. So it's not, it's not solely... A, a symbol, a structural symbol of religious practice, and yet it lends itself very mm. well to um, to interpretation for future Alevi architecture. Mm. That's very fascinating. It evokes the architecture of the regions in which Alevis have historically predominated, but in, in this context, it becomes linked to the you know the religious aspect of that identity. That's right. And I think, again, it, it says something about the idea that in urban centers, Alevis from all different backgrounds are congregating together. Mm. Um, so what, what would people choose if they were to represent their idea of what their Alevi like is? What yeah. would they choose to be their symbol? And, and the number 12 is very significant because of the 12 imams. Uh, the... Uh, present of the saws as a, in logos mm -hmm. and images is very prevalent um, and certainly very appropriate. Um, and as you said, the, it, the music of the Alevi community is often what people associate with them. Um, and is a, but it is also an aspect of the architecture because the music also has a, a role mm -hmm. in creating the space right. because the area in which people can hear the hymns is the area mm -hmm. in which the gem is is being practiced. So all of these things come together and can come together in interesting ways. And it will be incredibly interesting to see what people choose to do when they have the freedom and the resources mm -hmm. to continue constructing and experimenting with architecture. Another area that I've been exploring in the last a year or so is the conversion of closed Bektashi Sufi lodges for Alevi use. And there are uh. historical connections between the Bektashis and the Alevis that m many other scholars mm -hmm. have explored. But the use of these incredibly beautiful and historic buildings uh, is associated both with the actual foundation of the lodges because they often have a dedicated space for mm -hmm. ceremony as well as the necessary um, kitchen space facilities or they, they reconstruct these facilities. But the, it's also their proximity to pilgrimage mm -hmm. sites, mm -hmm. to tombs of exemplars, tombs of practicing Bektashis, tombs of Saeeds, yeah. that that is attractive to Alevi communities. Could you say a little bit more about the role of architecture in the Alevi practice of pilgrimage? Well, the practice of pilgrimage or, or ziyaret in, in Turkish, of going to visit exemplars, um, saintly figures, is in incredibly important for Alevis. It is a connection between the Alevis and the landscape. 
It is also a way for families to gather, especially when some family members now are living in other countries or mm. in the city. And so people will often go home in the springtime in order to make pilgrimage to their local saints. And this is an important aspect, actually, of of understanding gem evi architecture as well because while large numbers of muslim practicing muslims around the world and throughout islamic history have taught that the hajj pilgrimage to mecca mm-hmm. is one of the significant acts as a believing person the alevis do not teach this they teach instead that localized pilgrimages that regional pilgrimages are much more significant and so this in turn leads to the question of architectural orientation whereas mosques are oriented towards the qubla the direction of prayer facing mecca the alevis pray toward facing each other and the dede. Mm. Um, they say that the the heart is the direction of prayer. And so the not only that the sort of individual sites of pilgrimage, which are sometimes marked by by headstones or other ceremonial markers and sometimes are actually just known to the community, um, it also is in, incredibly important in terms of other aspects of Alevi architecture, the if the uh, direction of prayer is different from that of surrounding Muslims, then it creates a, an entirely different urban organization for Alevi centers, which are not required to, to turn in this direction. And the pilgrimage sites in Alevi, as many of them involve the sites of Bektashi, um, the Bektashi Lodges. Uh, Zeynep Yurekli wrote a very interesting book about hagiography and the interpretation of the Haji Bektashvili site and Said Ghazi, um, which are both um, visited by certain members of the Alevi community. And so there's some crossover uh, between Alevi sites and the sites of others. But if we are speaking about uh, Alevis, for example, Zaza-speaking Alevis living in the region of Dersim, often mm-hmm called Tunjeli, um, their pilgrimage sites in the, in the landscape are very much connecting them to the natural world and to mm-hmm. their surroundings in that sense. So again, as an architectural historian, I have had to think of new ways of defining what actually constitutes architecture. Yeah. And I tried to think more of sacred spaces and sites as as much as I do actual structures and built monuments to uh, to to people and and events that would otherwise determine what co- constitutes Islamic architecture. Fascinating. Angela, you've raised all sorts of different issues regarding uh, the transformation of Alavi community in practice, some of which we haven't even been able to address in full. We haven't been able to talk enough, I think, about the role of the Alavi diaspora in Europe and elsewhere in the phenomenon we're describing. We'll have to leave that for another time. But I, I want to I conclude by sort of coming to the issue of the contemporary significance of what's happening in Turkey uh, and within Alavi communities and uh, how how this uh, phenomenon of the Gemevi that's really 
in the making and in transformation as we speak, as you're talking, um, fits into this picture? Well, as we've been talking about, I mean, the prioritization of a purpose-built center for congregational worship uh, has not really been a priority for Alevi communities, both historically. historically speaking, both because they were prevented from building such such spaces and because they focused their efforts on other aspects of belief and practice and, mm-hmm. and daily life. But in since the 90s, well, the 80s and the 90s, uh, things have really changed a lot in terms of the public visibility of Alevi communities. One of the reasons behind this is, of course, uh, political dynamics within Republican Turkey, but also the establishment of Alevi publishing houses. Mm. Um, there are sevri- several Alevi publishing houses that have made what were traditionally oral teachings or teachings that were passed on from one mm. dede to another available to to all speakers of Kurmanji, Zaza and, and Turkish. And so this has given a, a kind of public face to Aleviism that was was somewhat hidden before. Mm. And to go along with this is a construction of these new purpose-built Alevi centers, both to fis- by the community to facilitate their needs, but it's been very useful in giving a public face to Alevis and to um, as you know, as they like to say in Turkish minority groups, say we we are here, um, and mm-hmm. this is really and this is the same idea of we have an address. Mm-hmm. We are we are present. This building represents the fact that our mm-hmm. community exists within this space, and that we are part of Turkish society. We have contributed to Turkish history. Our culture is Turkish culture. A lot of the songs that you listen to every day on the radio are songs that were written and performed by Alevi musicians. And so the symbolic value of the of the Alevi gem Evi has shifted from a space of worship to an actual kind of public embodiment of the Alevi presence in particular communities. And this has resulted in for example, a request by a parliamentarian to the Turkish Grand National Assembly to um, allocate an Alevi space of worship on the parliamentary grounds. Mm. Um, several cases have reached Yargatay or the mm-hmm. Court of Appeals. Mm-hmm. Um, and so people within the government have been asked to comment on the role of Alevi Jem Evis mm-hmm. specifically within Turkish society and then ter- the Turkish architectural fabric. And of course, anybody who has even a passing knowledge of Turkey knows that the architectural makeup of the country is amongst the, the richest sure. in, in the world. You have layers of very ancient and, uh, and very modern mm-hmm. architecture and everything in between. And so there are there's a lot of contrasting symbolism within that context but the long and the short of it is that many people have consulted with representatives from the, the Dianet, uh, which is the Ministry of Religious Affairs, in order to decide whether or not Alevi Jem 
evies should be considered places of worship and therefore licensable and permissible under Turkish laws about such spaces. Mm -hmm. And although many municipal governments have been extremely supportive of their Alevi constituents and have allocated land mm -hmm. for them or, or given them licenses, the, the overarching national government's perspective is that, well, Alevis, if they are going to claim to be Muslims, they should be using mm. mosques. And because the government funds and staffs and administers over 84,000 such yeah. mosque spaces, whether they are masjids or, jam or the larger congregational jami spaces, um, this, uh, of course, makes it into a, a human rights issue. Um, and so I have, um, I have spoken quite frequently about Alevi architecture as a human rights issue. Um, and the European Court of Human Rights has ruled um, that the Turkish government is oppressing the Alevi people. And one of the points that they bring up is the fact that they are often prevented from uh, from establishing places of worship. Mm. And so although we do see, as you said, you, we see mm -hmm. an increasing number of Alevi cultural centers, Alevi centers, Alevi Jem evi slash kutur merkezleri in the Turkish landscape, the situation under which these communities are building and operating yeah. is very taxing. Yeah. Um, they are they are taxed often mm -hmm. on the level of of, of private businesses. Um, the, although mosques are the, all of their utilities are paid, yeah. Alevis have to generate income in order to uh, to fund the operation of their buildings. And it's not just it's not just an economic issue. I think most communities are fine too maintain their independence in in exchange for for paying these these bills but what they really want is simply the recognition that they are mm. a religious community and they want to have a distinct space sure. for their religious ceremonies and so this this means that architecture does begin to play a very important role as as a symbol sure. and and an indicator of the human rights violations that are being enacted against Alevi communities and, and really have been going back to the very earliest period in, in the Ottoman under mm -hmm. the Ottoman Empire right. well I mean uh, that the, the political context there is is fascinating that uh, much in the way that Many various socioeconomic changes have 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 transformed um, uh, Alevi places of worship and the role of, of architecture. Also, sort of um, a need to assert the um, the rights of the community politically. Something we spoke about at the beginning of this podcast uh, uh, is also proving to be very central. And and I really like how how in our conversation today, you really brought together all these different factors. Um, in some of our episodes on mosques in the Ottoman Empire and in Turkey. We've tended to talk a lot about um, either aesthetics or politics and power behind them. Uh, in our conversation today, I like that we talked about like the meaning of the space, um, its function. Uh, actually, is a religious space. After all, it is a religious space. And I hope we'll be able to uh, carry that theme as well into our other conversations uh, on the history of architecture in the Ottoman Empire in Turkey. Angela, uh, thank you so much thank for you. giving us all your time today. It and was my pleasure energy. to be here. Thank you for having me. It was our pleasure to have you. 
I want to thank our listeners for tuning in and staying with us to the end of this conversation. Again, if you want to find out more, visit our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, where we've got a short bibliography. Check out our Facebook page. Over 25,000 people are there following our latest content. That's all for this episode. Join us next time. And thanks again for tuning in.